Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Public Policy. I am Tevi Troy, your host. Each week, we take a new book that looks at a pressing policy question and talk to the author. The author this week is William Damon, professor at Stanford University. The book is Failing Liberty 101, How We Are Leaving Young Americans Unprepared for Citizenship in a Free Society. Many of us love the idea of freedom, but Professor Damon argues that freedom is not enough, that we really need to pursue this notion of liberty that includes more than just the freedom to do what you want, but the ability to pass on and convey virtue from one generation to the next. He's got a very interesting, short, readable book, and we will have a nice conversation with him in a moment. Hello, and welcome Professor Damon to New Books on Public Policy. Professor Damon, thank you for joining us. Well, I'm glad to be here. Professor Damon is the author of Failing Liberty 101, How We Are Leaving Young Americans Unprepared for Citizenship in a Free Society. Professor Damon, I want to get into talking about your book, but first, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Can you talk about your background? Sure. Uh, I've been at Stanford for about 15 years now. I came from Brown University, where I was a university professor there, and the head of a center on human development. And at Stanford, I've started and run a center on youth development. Uh, Adolescence and early adulthood is really what we're focused on, probably the ages between 12 and 30. And we're mostly interested in how young people find their purpose in life, their sense of direction, what they care about, the kinds of values and motives they have and promoting healthy development uh, among all the young people from all backgrounds, uh, especially in this country. Great. Can you summarize your book and tell us how you came to write it? Sure. Uh, Failing Liberty is a book about civic purpose, about the dimension of life that has to do with contributions to society, to community, to the political world. The interest in being part of the democracy and perhaps even taking a leadership role. And the reason I wrote the book is because I'm very concerned about how well we're preparing young people for their roles as American citizens in the future. My concern came out of a previous long piece of work that I did with my students and staff on how young people find purpose in life generally. In other words, how they figure out what they want to do with their lives, what kind of jobs they want to have, what they want to accomplish in the world, why they want to accomplish it. And of all the sources of purpose that we saw young people becoming interested in, which includes work, career, family, starting a family, building a family, in some cases amongst young young people's faith, serving God, of all those sources of purpose, the idea of 
contributing to the country of assuming citizen, citizenship or civic leadership, running for office, that kind of uh, civic concerns came in dead last. They were the that was the last set of aspirations that young people in our time have. And even as a citizen of this country myself, I was pretty concerned about this because, as I'm sure you know, our democracy depends on the participation of as many citizens as possible. And looking to the future, all of the privileges and important advantages that we have in American society that come from our tradition of liberty, of citizens having a voice in their country, all of those are precious legacies that we have that need to be preserved and even improved. And that's not going to happen in the future unless enough young people are motivated enough to devote themselves to these things. Professor, presumably there are other reasons why people might not want to participate in the governing process. I mean, you look at someone like Mitch Daniels, who chose not to run for president because he didn't want his family to undergo the scrutiny. And there are constant examples of people who come to Washington and get hounded out of town by the press or the uh, or congressional investigations or, or, or whatever. It, so it's, it's a constant issue that uh, serving in public life in the 24-7 media cycle in the age of the Internet is unpleasant. Why do you say it's about lack of preparation and not this other unpleasantness? Well, the unpleasantness itself is part of the preparation, unfortunately. It's a, it's a part of a mispreparation, uh, meaning that there is a lot of cynicism in the media and filtering right down through the schools and in the world that the young people are absorbing. Uh, cynicism about the value of politics, and this we pick up in the interviews we do with young people. Uh, my book is full of quotes of youngsters saying things like, oh, the system is rigged, nobody would ever listen to me anyway, politicians are just a bunch of corrupt fools, why would I want to be one of them? And of course, you can always find instances where this is true, and as you said, it's a tough slog these days to especially run for president, although I will say in the case of Mitch Daniels, he is still being governor, which is pretty significant uh, political involvement. And we're not, of course, aspiring to have every young person run for president, but we do hope that they'll get interested enough that they'll take part in voting, that they'll become informed, that they'll do things like write letters or emails to their congressperson, and in general, that they'll be an active part of their society. And I think that no matter how difficult it is, and, and even though there are a lot of cases of, uh, of people in our political system not acting right, that if you give up on the idea that the society is, if you if you start thinking that society is so corrupt it's not even worth contributing to, you really leave the running of the country over to the very, very few people who are power hungry. Uh, that's how despotism arises, when most ordinary good people step back and let someone else do it. And we certainly don't want to let the next generation grow up in that kind of a mode. We want to 
have them try to make the system better and recognize the flaws, recognize the challenges, but have enough hope and enough belief in the system that they'll do their part. Other than this unwillingness to participate, how else would you say this lack of preparation for citizenship, which is something you write a lot about in the book, how else does it manifest? Well, one thing is just ignorance of some of the essential things that young people need to know if they're going to operate within the American system. There's been a very recent report from NAEP, the National uh, Assessment of Educational Progress, that shows that of all the subject matters that young people in high school are studying, math, English, whatever, that the least proficiency is found in the area of civics and history. And I think less than a quarter of high school seniors were judged as being proficient in this area. So that's one indicator that young, that too many young people are simply not learning enough about how the system works to be able to participate constructively in it. I mean, these kids didn't even know the difference between uh, the separation of powers, uh, the difference between the different powers, the executive branch, the legislative branch, the judicial branch, or understand what the Bill of Rights was for. I mean, basic stuff that you would hope that citizens know about in order to make good judgments at the polls or even serving on juries or any of the civic duties that we rely on citizens taking. And so there are a lot of uh, indicators of this. Uh, there's also been a steep decline in voting. Uh, in 1972, when 18 to 21-year-olds were given the vote, something like 70 or 80 percent of them voted. Now it's down to around 50 percent. There was a little spike in the 2008 election from 48 percent to 52 percent, but that's not a very much of a spike. And for sure, it's going to go down in the next election. So all of these interest, all of these indicators are evidence of number one, a lack of understanding and knowledge, and number two, a lack of enough interest to actually devote some time, effort, and energy to doing your civic duty and helping run the country, which is in a democracy what citizens need to do, unless they want to give up the whole show to some dictator. Yeah, I'm glad you listed out the three elements of the separation of powers, because otherwise I might have had to test you on them. So thank you for coming up with that. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, th there's kind of a key section in your book, page five, where you list the four assertions that kind of govern the book, that virtue is important, that the loss of virtue is manifested in refusal to accept responsibility, that America is failing to pass on virtues to the next generation. And then here's kind of the kicker line, unless we fix this, it will lead to despotism. And that sounds pretty stark, the lead to despotism. I know uh, Americans don't like despotism at all. But can, can you talk a little bit about, do you think I've accurately characterized what you're trying to say in the book? And, and do you think the word despotism is too strong? Yes, you've, accu you've accurately characterized it. And there's been a number of people before me, uh, some very distinguished people who have worried about this, going back to the founders, uh, Ben Franklin, said almost the exact same thing. So these are not original ideas on my part. It's well known that if people in a society do not act responsibly, 
if they need to be controlled by external means, meaning that they don't have the virtue, the virtue to, number one, control their own impulses, but number two, the virtue to devote themselves to improving the society and a lot of other people. It's well known that in those societies, for sure, some strong man, some external force will step in and do the job for the citizens of that society. That's what despotism is. It's when there's a vacuum and somebody who is power hungry and enjoys controlling things steps in and tells everyone what to do because the citizens themselves are not doing it for themselves. So the relationship between liberty and virtue is a longstanding relationship that's been understood by virtually every political theorist and statesperson who has understood the workings of democracy and cares about liberty. In fact, I have quotes in the book from each of the founders, who, all of whom were very dedicated to educating young people for the kind of virtue that's needed in order to preserve liberty in society. You mentioned this concept of liberty frequently throughout the book, and I think it's important to note that liberty does not equal freedom. Liberty and freedom are distinctive. Can you explain the difference between them and why that's important? Yes, I'm, I'm glad you asked that because I think that's one of the areas that there's been a lot of confusion and where, again, kids aren't born knowing this. They need to be taught this and they need to, be under, they need to understand it. And I think not enough people do. Freedom really means autonomy and letting loose all of the systems of control, the boundaries on behavior. And some kinds of freedom are important, uh, freedom of expression, freedom of religion. And those kinds of freedoms have to do with political liberty. Uh, and they come about because the society is organized in a way that prevents a government or prevents any force from interfering with a person's own pursuit of their own conscience. That's a very important part of liberty. And that's what liberty means. That's what political liberty means. Freedom can range all over the place. It could include political liberty, but it could be freedom from your um, standards, uh, freedom to uh, run wild through the streets, freedom to drink yourself into oblivion. Uh, in other words, freedom can easily become licentiousness, can become chaos, and it's responsible freedom that contributes to liberty. In other words, it's people who have the self-control and the sense of virtue to make good judgments about what areas of life they justifiably need liberty and freedom, and what areas of life they should control themselves. They, that's part of growing up is self-discipline, uh, developing a work ethic, uh, not feeling free to sleep all day or to go to movies all day when uh, you should be at work, and on and on, all the other millions of examples of ways in which we need to control some of the baser parts of our own instincts. And that's why freedom itself is not ultimately a virtue. Freedom itself is 
uh, is something that uh, has advantages and and very important um, role to play in life, but under a system of self-control. And as I said, it has to be responsible and it has to be virtuous. And that's why in my book, I use the word liberty, because what I'm really concerned about is political freedom, uh, political liberty, which is right at the heart of the American tradition. You know, let's talk about this, some of the problems of freedom gone uh a little too far. You talk in the book about how 37% of births are out of wedlock, out of non-married relationships these days. And some might say that that's just an economic problem, right? It's, it's harder to it's harder to be successful in life if you come from a one-parent family. Those uh, those children are more likely to be on welfare, less likely to go to college, etc. Why do you think that's a cultural problem, and how does that manifest? Well, uh, first let me start by saying that the last thing I want to do is stigmatize children of single-parent homes, and there are certainly many, many cases in which a single parent uh, has raised a child to do every bit as well or better than uh, than his or her peers. So a child born in a single-parent fam- family is not doomed to failure, but the probabilities are against, uh, let me put it this way, the probabilities are more in favor of a two-parent home because there is simply more of a support system there. And it's a lot harder, uh, not just economically, but in terms of child raising, it's just harder for a parent to do it alone. So it is a social concern when a huge number of people in the population, increasing numbers of people in the population, find themselves in the position of having to raise children by themselves. Uh, it is an economic problem, and there are economic advantages that are uh, important in, in growing up. Uh, access to good schools, access to books, and even good clothes and sports and, and all of those things come from economic advantages. But there's also simply the amount of time that you have to spend giving guidance to your child and having two parents who are committed to the child and uh, able to squeeze that into their work lives is an advantage for a child. Uh, and and the data that I cite, uh, for the first time in history in the current year, we're going to um, be at a point where fewer than half of our adult population is married. Uh, And as you said, um, uh, well over a third of children now are raised in single family homes. And in a normative sense, as I said, many of those kids are going to turn out just fine. Uh, but in a normative sense, it's risky, and a lot of the kids are not going to do well. And if we're looking for a society where people are able to contribute and learn good values and learn not just academic skills, but a sense of caring and and devotion to society and contributing, they're able to contribute to society, it's going to be a healthier stronger society if you have more children raised in a situation that gives them the best shot, the best odds at learning 
all of the things that they need to learn, ranging from the academic to the social to the moral to the civic. You're certainly right that being born in a single-parent home or growing up in a single-parent home doesn't guarantee anything or presuppose anything. Two of our last three presidents, if you think about it, were raised in largely single-parent environments, uh, both Presidents Barack Barack Obama and Bill uh, Bill Clinton. Um, Another thing you talk about, though, uh, which I think makes the problem of single-parent homes worse, is the issue of what what you say, there's a quote of the public schools are failing. Again, there's an economic component to this. Can we compete with rising economies like India and China if we don't have a successful public school system? But you say that it's more than economic. There's there's a cultural aspect to, to it as well. Can you talk about that? Right, and you make a very good point that uh, it's one thing uh, to raise a child in a single family, a single parent home, where there are a lot of social supports in the community, and especially in the school system. If the teachers are able to step in, give the child some guidance, spend extra time with the child, and by the way, if the neighbors can as well, if you live in that kind of society, you have a lot more support. And that makes it less risky uh, to raise a child in a single-parent family. But unfortunately, our society has drifted away from all of those things. Neighborhoods are no longer places where people feel they have the obligation or even the right to look out for the neighbor's children. The school system, and this is what I mostly write about in the book, The school system has drifted more and more towards a single-minded focus on academic skills, and many schools are spending so much time on this. And by the way, that's what schools are being evaluated on, and that's what teachers are being evaluated on. So if the kids aren't learning the three R's, the school's in trouble and the teacher's in trouble. And this has squeezed out a lot of time for counseling, a lot of the resources that schools have to provide counselors for their students. And a lot of the time, a lot of times that teachers used to have to hang around after class and uh, talk to a child who seems to be having a problem or even discipline a child, which is also a part of child rearing, to uh, pay enough attention to the child to pick up on when the child's made a mistake or done something wrong and caring enough about the child to actually discipline the child. Schools are stepping away from this responsibility, uh, not just stepping away, I have to say running away from it with incredible speed. Uh, This latest initiative of Race to the Top has only accelerated the single-minded focus on these basic skills, which removes uh, from the classroom a lot of the time, attention, and resources that teachers would pay on the whole child. And it is a cultural problem. Uh, By the way, it's an academic problem too, because if you have a well-motivated child who is thriving and really wants to be in school, that child is going to learn more. So even on the academic goals, it's short-sighted to ignore this kind of very close teacher-child relationship. But In a cultural sense, if we want to impart good values to the child, if we want to create a sense of community and a sense of obligation to that community, we really need to return to a time, and there has been times in this country's history, where schools really believed that it was their responsibility not just to promote basic academic skills, 
but to promote character, to promote virtue, and to promote citizenship among their students. Yeah, I actually must admit I was a little worried about this section because I'm not sure I trust our public schools to teach our our students virtue. You see all this political correctness, and there's a sense that America is is not a, a special place, and uh, there, there's just a, a relativism that is imbued in public school curricula. So perhaps we're better off if they just teach reading, writing, arithmetic, et cetera, <laughs> and, and we let the parents te- teach the values. At least they'll pass on the values they want rather than some kind of mushy, politically correct values that don't really reflect what the founders were thinking about. Yeah, well, you've got a point there, and I spend, as you know, uh, sections of my book um, arguing against uh, this disparagement of virtues such as uh, moral commitment and even patriotism, which is a very difficult word to use in schools these days. And so I understand your hesitance here, but I would say two things about that. First of all, public schools can do this, and we know they can, because there were large periods of time in our nation's history. In fact, for the first 100 or 150 years of public schooling in this country, schools did exactly that. The mission of a school in the 19th century, and for most of the 20th century until World War II, the mission of a school was to create a sense of civic purpose and unity among all the diverse populations of immigrants that were coming from everywhere, all these different ethnic backgrounds. The common school was the place that the kids got together and the teachers taught basic values. The McGuffey Reader was full of basic values like honesty and fairness and respect for authority and a sense of what America was and what America stood for and what the founding fathers believed and the democracy and liberty and all the American ideals. And so schools have done this before and it worked. I mean, this was the time that produced the greatest generation, the the folks that worked their way out of the Great Depression and fought World War II and created the middle class in the 1950s. So we know public schools are capable of doing this. Now, as for your point about the um, political correctness, there are a lot of bad ideas floating around schools at this time, and I talk about a lot of these in my book, but that's changeable. Bad ideas can be replaced by good ideas. And, you know, if you just ignore it and walk away from it and say, well, just let the parents do it because the schools can't do it. Guess what? The kids are going to get these messages anyway, if the teachers believe them. It's just that they're not going to get them in any kind of organized, serious way where the kids can even discuss them. They're just going to get the teachers making side comments about about uh, moral relativism or criticizing the United States or doing things that uh, that actually discourage kids from even looking further into these issues or thinking further about them. So it's much more important, no matter what happens, schools are going to be a climate for kids learning something about the moral world. It's much better to pay attention to it and do it right than to just let something not very well worked out happen on its own and pretend it's not happening. That's really just burying our heads in the sand. It's time for us to return to the great period in American education where schools took on this challenge seriously and did it well. 
Let me raise another challenge, and I really must emphasize that I'm not hostile to the argument in, in your book. I just found the book very provocative and really brought up a lot of questions in, in my own mind. When I was reading the book, it really made me think of this of a great book from a couple of years ago that I don't think got nearly the attention it deserved, which was Hard America, Soft America by Michael Barone. And what Barone said is that our public schools are really not creating great virtuous citizens and that they're not preparing students for the world. But after people graduate from high school, he said we have the worst 18-year-olds in the world, Americans do. But in that period between 18 and 30, because of the hyper-competitiveness of our college system, because of our uh, selective uh, military, because of our, um, our free market economy that doesn't mollycoddle people but forces you to, uh, to, to work and, and be successful if you, want, if you want to get ahead. Because of those things, while we have terrible 18-year-olds, we have great 30-year-olds. What, what do you think of that argument? Well, he's right, but only partially right. Uh, and he doesn't, I guess, have access to the kinds of data that we've been collecting at Stanford, which are national data across broad sectors of the population. He's absolutely right that we have a lot of great 30-year-olds or great 25-year-olds and great 20-year-olds too, by the way. Uh, but the numbers that we have, that we come up with in our research, at least until the mid-20s, shows that about one out of five of young people are thriving, on track, full of purpose, well-directed, and learning what they need to learn to not only be competitive, but to excel. And that's great. And that, those kids exist. There's no question about it. And I'm sure Barone sees a lot of them. I think he's at Harvard. And so, you know, the sample that he's looking at is are going to be somewhat un unrepresentative, but certainly in line with what he's talking about. However, in our research, we find that about 75 or 80 percent of the young people in this age range are either still looking for direction, so they haven't figured things out yet. And by the way, a lot of the 30-year-olds we interview or study have already had maybe 14 jobs, and I'm not exaggerating. They're drifting around from one thing to another. They haven't found something they're dedicated to, and they haven't really picked up the skills that, that they need to truly be competitive. And about a quarter of them, uh, there is a sizable part of the population, uh, almost a quarter, have given up. They are so discouraged or apathetic or cynical at that point that they're not even trying. You can't even talk to them about goals. So Barone is absolutely right that there is a sector of the population that just looks great. And I'm, I'm sure they look great in terms of world standards everywhere. But there are too many kids that are not part of that population. And my concern in failing liberty is with our democracy. And you can't run a democracy well with only 20% of the people on track or a small minority of the people. That doesn't work. You need to get everybody or at least as many people as possible participating. And that's been the way it's been in, in, in the nation's past. Uh, we know that even in the 19th century, people from all walks of life would turn out in the town square. They'd be reading the little sheets, the little newspapers of the time, they'd be arguing, they'd be going down to the courtroom, they'd be fighting a lot, sure, but they were involved, they were engaged. And if you get large sectors of the population that are just so disaffected that they give up or they don't care, then you really have a problem. You, you, you really have a lack of trust developing in the whole society. So um, 
it's a fragmented generation. Uh, there's different stories for different sectors of it. Uh, Barone has captured what's happening with one prominent sector, and that's a good thing. But I think he's missed the story for the majority of the kids. Let me just uh, clarify that um, Barone is a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and one of our best writers about elections and demographics, a very interesting guy. But uh, I think he would agree with you that his analysis does not cover all, all of American kids. One person who comes up in the book a lot, who is someone you don't seem to have a lot of affection for, is Howard Zinn. Can you tell us who Howard Zinn is, why he's important, and why he's problematic? Sure. I mean, I have no hard feelings to him personally. I actually, when I was a very young scholar and he was a more senior fellow, uh, he was gracious enough to give me a few hours of his time uh, during an interview, and he was very, very gracious. So it's not personal, but he has written a book that's very uh, popular uh, and widely used uh, called A People's History of the United States and created a curriculum kind of based on that, uh, including the Zinn Educational Project uh, um, approach that is so negative and disparaging of American history that it imparts to young people the message that our society has done more things wrong than right. Uh, and I mean, he even criticizes things like our conduct of World War II as being a kind of imperialistic venture, uh, the founders as being a group of white wealthy landholders who didn't really care about justice, uh, bleak views of, uh, of great achievements in the past uh, that um, fail to give young people a basis of affection and concern. And let me say this, that first of all, I applaud any effort to teach the whole story of American history to students, including the warts and the mistakes and the wrong things that were done and foster critical thinking. That's all part of being a good citizen in a democracy. But critical thinking and skepticism need to be based on some sense that you care, that you care enough to improve that which you are criticizing. And all of the great movements in the nation's history against totalitarianism, in favor of groups that have been oppressed, all of them have been fought in the name of the American ideals of liberty and justice for all. And I say in my book, for example, the civil rights movement, which I consider to be one of the great landmark movements of progress in the 20th century, even though it's not complete and even though there are still populations left out, real progress was made. And there are some great heroes from that time. And one of them was Martin Luther King Jr., who made a point of saying in his incredibly um, moving dream speech, he said that his dream was, quote, deeply rooted in the American dream. And the power that added to his talk and his movement came from the idea that the current reality, which was far from perfect, which had a lot of injustice, that current reality was a discrepancy from the noble ideals that this country was founded on. And 
an appreciation for those ideals and even a sense of gratitude that you live in a country where you can pursue those ideals publicly without fear, without uh, without a sense that the government at least is going to get in your way. That sense of appreciation and positive affection for the country is exactly the basis for efforts to improve it. That's how you do it. That's how you make a difference. So the criticism is fine, and uh, I'm all in favor of uh, the information uh, that Zinn presents in his book about mistakes, sometimes terrible, terrible mistakes that have been made in this country. But to remove from the narrative all of the positive achievements that have created democracy and have given people the hope and the optimism that they can improve things and change things, especially young people when they are in their formative years and deciding what they're going to do with their lives, to take that away from them and not to offer them that basis of hope and optimism, I think is just making a huge educational mistake. And so that's the basis of my criticism of that of that movement, which has become quite influential in some educational circles. You end the book on a somewhat depressing note where you say that the American dream is really threatened. Can you talk a little bit about your vision of the American dream and how it's threatened and how we can perhaps save it? Sure. And by the way, it's not the American dream itself that I think is in trouble. It's people's perception of the American dream. There's a whole industry these days of disparaging the American dream. I can't tell you, if you go on Google or Amazon and take a look at books with the word American or the phrase American dream in it, you'll see subtitles like the futile pursuit of the American dream or the vanishing American dream or the American dream is dead or the disappearing American dream. And I think it's um, pretty much uh, common language or conventional wisdom in the media that uh, the American dream, first of all, uh, has weakened because there's less social mobility. And secondly, of course, the American dream really is about prosperity and accumulating material goods, lots of fancy houses and BMWs and that kind of thing. And kids are having less of a shot at that. And that not only is being written about and discussed in intellectual circles and media circles, it's filtering down to the schools. And so I have interviews in my book with students that are saying things like, yeah, the history told us, the history teacher told us the other day that the American dream is dead. And the students often react, as the one I just quoted said, you know, I didn't really believe that. Uh, to me, uh, I mean, she was, I think, 16 years old. And she said, to me, uh, the American dream is about pursuing my own dreams. And uh, I think I can do it. The kids are idealistic and they want to be encouraged. Uh, people ought to be idealistic. Traditionally, they have always been ideal idealistic. And the American dream used to be, before our current epoch, it used to be about much more than material aspirations. It used to be about the idea that you could follow your own conscience, that you could create your own destiny, and that the government wasn't going to get in the way, and some powerful person down the street wasn't going to be able to stop you from doing it. And sure, material success and economic opportunity is a part of that, because you need to support yourself. But it was really m more about 
having having your own sense of who you are, who you want to be, and being able to to do that freely without restriction. Young people still want this; they believe in this, but unfortunately, the message they're getting from the media, from their schools, is that don't hold out any false hopes about this. The American dream is not a part of our current reality, if it ever was. And to say this to a young person, uh, whatever the statistics are about social mobility, and I do recognize that social mobility has decreased over the past generation, and we ought to work on bringing it back, no doubt about that. But to say to a young person that you don't have any hope of advancement or following your dreams is, I can't imagine a more miseducative thing to say. Uh, first of all, those data don't speak to the success of any individual. They're normative data. They don't, they don't predict anybody's fate. And young people, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Young people who believe they will succeed and get ahead and, and achieve their dreams are much more likely to do that. The young people who think they don't have a chance. So I offer a call in my book to bring back a belief in the American dream. And to the extent that it's hard to reach for some young people or some groups, let's work harder at making it available to everybody, but certainly to hold out hope to young people and to also talk to them about traditionally how America has been a land of opportunity. It's stood for that. And that's in accord with the great American ideals of liberty, democracy, the pursuit of happiness, all of these things that our country was built on that uh, that make America much more than a, a geographical place, but make it into a land of promise that people really all over the world uh, want to come to. And unfortunately, in our own society and our own schools, maybe we've gotten somewhat complacent and have given up uh, or at least forgotten about how important it is to keep these ideals alive uh, in, for ourselves. Professor Damon, you've been incredibly generous with your time. We have one more question, which is our signature question here on New Books and Public Policy, which is if you were czar for a day and you could do whatever you wanted in the public policy realm, what would you do from a public policy perspective based on what you've learned in coming up with your book? You know, I, I'm a big believer in the power of ideas and not regulation laws forcing people to do anything rather inspiring people. And what I would do is I would create a day of national conversations where people from all walks of life, both leaders and celebrity people and highly successful people, but also people who are living ordinary, fulfilled lives as parents, as workers, I'd have, to, I'd have everybody have conversations about gratitude about what it is in their lives they have a sense of appreciation for, and especially for the gifts and privileges that have been given to them by the American society that they've been lucky enough to either have immigrated to or been born here, and what it is that this society and our traditions and the 
ideals that the founders actually embedded into our constitutional way of organizing our life and governance, what it is that they've been able to profit from in achieving their own dreams and what the American dream has meant to them. And I would create a, a forum, a national, a national conversation, which would have local components, which would have uh, nationwide components, where people simply expressed gratitude and expressed their hopes for ways that future generations might also benefit from these same privileges and maybe extend them and expand them and make these privileges more available to groups in the population that may have had a harder time benefiting from them. The book is Failing Liberty 101, How We Are Leaving Young Americans Unprepared for Citizenship in a Free Society. We've been privileged to have the author, William Damon, on the line. Professor Damon, thank you for joining us. Thank you. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to an interview with Professor William Damon, the author of Failing Liberty 101, How We Are Leaving Young Americans Unprepared for Citizenship in a Free Society. The book is from Hoover Institution Press. And as you heard in the interview, Professor Damon has some very strong views about how we are to pass on the American dream and this notion of liberty from one generation to another generation in America in which this is an increasing challenge and it's harder and harder to pass on the ideals of our founding fathers from one group of Americans to the next. Thank you for joining us on New Books in Public Policy. I'm your host, Tevi Troy, and until next time, keep reading, everyone.